Welcome to the ACOFP Student Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Hello, welcome to ACOFP Student Podcast. I'm Katie Hawks, and I'm the Vice President of the National Student Executive Board. Today, we're so excited to be talking with someone who doesn't really need an introduction, Dr. Margaret Wilkins. But in case you don't know her, Dr. Wilkins is the Residency Program Director for PCOM St. Joseph's Medical Center for the past 17 years, and currently, she's working part-time at PCOM as the Director of Faculty Development for MedNet, where she contributes educational lectures, OMM workshops, communication seminars, and well-being curriculum. Today, we're going to dive into why OMT is so important to her and why she chose family practice as a career. Thank you for being here with us, Dr. Wilkins. I am so very happy. ACOFP is an incredibly important organization to me. Awesome. Thank you for being here. So to start off, our our listeners want to know why you chose family medicine as a specialty in the first place. Well, it was not what I thought I would do when I entered medical school. I actually thought I would go into pediatrics. It's what I always loved. When I was both in high school and in college, I worked as a ward clerk in a hospital to help, you know, with tuition. And I almost always was on the peds floor, and I absolutely loved it. Um, However, the longer I was on, the more I realized that I had to take care of some pretty sick kids. And back in the day of the cave, when I went to school, um, kids died from leukemia. And I saw a bunch of kids die, which was really hard. So I started to think maybe I didn't want to do peds. And then I uh, had my first baby and I thought, maybe I could do that. I loved pathology. I loved mystery and the detective work of it. And I spent three elective months doing pathology. And again, I oh, really wonderful. loved it. However, I would leave the, the lab and go to patient room to see who they were, whose organs they were, and find out their histories. And a very great mentor who was a pathologist said, you know, Margaret, I think I have the heart of a family doctor. And I realized that I really did love every single rotation that I went on. I'm glad that he pointed me in the right direction. That's awesome. I think that's how a lot of us get into family. You know, we end up loving everything. So it's just like the the jack of all trades. Um, yes. So you talked about how much you love ACOFP and being in this organization. What's your favorite aspect of being in the ACOFP? The educational piece. The very first time I came into contact with the national ACOFP when uh, I was asked to be on the committee that designs the in-training exam. And I loved the academics of it. We were locked up in a hotel for a whole weekend, just talked about family medicine and wrote questions and, you know, had big discussions about the the questions. And then I got to sit on the committee for education and evaluation that talks about all residency programs and standards. And then I helped uh, the uh, board review. and continued to be faculty on that. So I love to teach. And it's actually why I like to do a lot with ACOFP. And I'm not very big in AOBFP uh, because I really like the educational piece more. Um, For students who don't know what that organization is, did you say AOBFP? What's What's the difference? I'm actually not familiar with that either. So it's the American Osteopathic Board of Family Medicine. So they are the um, part of our 
organization certifies everyone in okay. family medicine. Gotcha. So it's more of a legal certification piece of it. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Thank you for clarifying. Sure. Um, so for our next question, our listeners want to know what type of practice or academic setting did you work um, in family medicine? I know you're not in practice right now, but just in the past, if you could tell them a little bit more about that. Sure. After my residency, I came back to Pennsylvania because I had already had two of my three boys and one of them close to their grandparents and joined a private practice in a rural community uh, in uh, central Pennsylvania. I was joining two men who had already been in practice for 10 years and so was not quite sure what this practice would entail for me. And it didn't really matter because mommies brought themselves and their babies and then children to me. And that's pretty much then how my practice uh, continued for most of my years in clinical medicine. I would occasionally have their daddy, rarely have their grandfather, except on a Saturday when I was the only provider there. Uh, then I had my third son and decided that I wanted a little bit more of a routine schedule and was offered the position as the medical director for a developmental clinic for children and adults. And that was very rewarding work. I felt like I made significant differences in their lives, not just in their health care. Uh, and I found that to be very rewarding. And what changed me for leaving there was they started to send me third-year family medicine residents on their community medicine rotation to find out about our services. And I found out how much I love teaching. So I waited for a faculty position to keep to come open, and then I became the associate program director at St. Joe's uh, for 18 months under a great mentor who took me in knowing that he wanted to retire and was going to teach me everything, and then I became the program director and stayed for 17 years uh, there, and uh, again, it was really rewarding work, and then I retired from uh, clinical medicine and uh, became the support person for the graduate medical education programs at PCOM. Awesome. I love hearing about your journey just because it shows the breadth of family medicine. I feel like how many, how over your career you could work in different areas, but still be practicing under the umbrella of family. So that's really awesome. Yes, I talk to students about that all the time, uh, that I've had such a diverse career because I was a family physician. Exactly. So um, you said you love to teach, and I've gotten to hear your lectures at ACOFP <laughs> over OMM in the office setting, which I loved. And I want to know what piqued your interest in OMM in the first place, because that's how I've been exposed to your teaching. And um, that's kind of what this podcast is about today. Thanks so much, Katie. Well, I will tell you that I only applied to osteopathic schools, much to the chagrin of my undergrad advisor during my pre-med years, because I loved the osteopathic philosophy. I told you I had been a ward clerk, and I got to see a DO, and I just noticed how different he practiced medicine. And so I only applied to osteopathic schools. And I got into Des Moines, and I really loved it there because 
I think part of it was uh, the Midwest. They were so kind and friendly. Uh, so I was there, and then I did my residency uh, up at Lakeview, which was a really small community hospital in Wisconsin. And I just kept practicing my osteopathic skills. My friends and family all loved that I could use my hands. Um, I finally bought myself a portable table because I was tired of trying to treat people on the floor and yep. couch. Um, and I, I just loved my skills. Um, but sadly, because of the era that I was uh, trained in, I pretty much just learned HVLA and some soft tissue. Um, and it was my residents that taught me so much else. They really taught me about viscerosomatic and cranial concerns. I learned about counter strain with them. Um, and I just have always used it my entire career. Um, and friends and family still ask me to help them. Um, and in particular, um, a friend called me just the other night with a flare of ulcerative colitis. And I talked uh, him through how to do the techniques on himself um, and got a hold of me the next day and let me know how much better he felt. So that's awesome. Just great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great part when you can teach your patients too how to, how to help themselves, you know, so that they don't always have to rely on going to the physician. So that's really cool that you were able to, to teach them how to do that. Yes. So you kind of touched on this, but what is the most rewarding part of using OMM when you use it in practice and then on your family and friends? Oh, I can make them feel better before they even leave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's something yeah. I love, too. Um, I, right. I think that was one of the things that actually built my practice in private practice, because I could make people's headaches go away before they left the office. Um, uh, even back in the day, I tried not to use antibiotics, um, and so I did all of the ENT sequence and made people feel better, and they were less angry at me for not getting a script for an <laughs> antibiotic. So, uh, yeah, I just loved how I could help them right there and then. That's awesome. So you kind of touched on how you were trained in HVLA, and then you've learned a lot from your residents. Is there a certain mm -hmm. OMM modality that you like to use, a certain technique? Um, I know you, you probably use a lot of them, but, you know, we all kind of have our favorites. <laughs> uh, well, I would say probably I use ENT sequence more than anything else. Um, I do it on myself when I used to ride on planes um, to try to get my uh, eardrums to pop going up and going down. Um, I've taught so many mommies the colonic stim to help babies because, you know, sometimes mommies are obsessed with poop. And so <laughs> uh, I teach them how to do that. Um, I also love, um, you know, all the ganglion releases to be able to help with colic as well as with uh, constipation and diarrhea. Um, it sounds yeah. like you lot of, like a lot of techniques which is really cool it's unfortunately something we're not taught a, we're not taught a lot of that in medical school but that's really awesome maybe mm -hmm. you can teach us this year at ACOFP <laughs> I would love that Katie awesome so um, for when you first treat patients how do you explain OMM to them if they're not familiar with it because that's something that students sometimes struggle with is coming up with simple terminology to explain and I didn't know if you had a way you ex explained what OMM was to your patients sure um, I, I think uh, my uh, discussion with students is about make this short and sweet 
um, and make sure that you're using patient-friendly language. Um, so, you know, I actually tell them to develop a shtick that you can say in under a minute. Uh, so I used to say that I'm a DO, and uh, like an MD, I went to medical school, and I learned additional uh, techniques with my hands that can often make you feel better without having to use uh, medication or will actually help the medication to work a little bit better. This shouldn't hurt, and if it does, you let me know, and I will stop. Would it be okay if I tried some of this on you today? Yeah, I think that's important to keep it short and sweet. And that's great. I like that you were able to like bring in, you know, we're similar to our MD counterparts. We have this extra um, tool in our tool belt, more or less. So that's great. Well, no, no, not similar. We're better <laughs> because we have more modalities that we can use to treat. Yep, I agree. So mm -hmm. when you're explaining to your other professional colleagues like MDs, do you do a similar sort of explanation or do you try to go more scientific with it? So, Katie, after 34 years in practice, um, I'm okay with who I am and knowing that what I do really helps. Um, as, and then having, you know, taught generation of physicians. Mm -hmm. I don't try to convince them anymore. If they're open to it, I'm really happy to explain it. And, and really we'll talk then about um, science and show them what I'm doing. But you know, there's a lot of people that just don't believe in what we're doing, and I can't change minds. Um, right. uh, I, I think that was really obvious. Um, I got to speak once at the American Academy of Pediatrics um, and had a lot of MD physicians in the um, audience, and, you know, they pretty much tore me to pieces uh, about the research. And I have to admit, our research is hard to understand as an MD because they don't know how difficult it is to actually set up a protocol for osteopathic techniques because we treat the entire patient. Mm -hmm. So like we could have 10 steps, like the Mopsy trial has 10 steps, but with every single study we design, we also say treat whatever dysfunction the patient has, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then it kind of negates the whole protocol aspect of it. Um, so, you know, I, I have lectured, especially at like the Family Medicine Education Consortium where family docs are very interested in what we do, who are MDs. Um, and they're interested and, and open to learning about it. And for the ones that are closed-minded about it, I, I actually have just stopped. Okay, I think that's I think that's important that you don't need to try to beat a dead horse with it. You know, people no. are going to be open to it or they're not. Um, and I think that's critical that you know, like for example, if you're treating a patient with COPD, they're not. Of course, they're going to have rib dysfunctions, but it's not going to say they're all going to have a rib one dysfunction. You know what I'm saying? So right. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. um, you, we treat the patient. We don't. We're not all about protocols. We're about what we feel with our hands and then treating that. So I think that's critical. Mm -hmm. Um. You were kind of, you kind of touched on this vaguely how, you know, sometimes there are people who are close minded to OMT. Mm -hmm. As a DO who practices OMM, have you experienced any barriers um, in your journey and through your career? Or is this just something you've been true to yourself and been able to just overcome any obstacles? I never have, thankfully. Uh, I went to Des Moines, then Wisconsin, then Pennsylvania, um, all very osteopathically friendly states. Um, so I have never experienced uh, any concerns. I know that my residents would 
from time to time get some issues with the nurses on the floors just because they didn't quite understand. Uh, and then it was just a matter of educating our nurses and often then treating the nurses, uh, which sometimes backfired because then we treated a lot of nurses. Right. Um, but that was the only time and, you know, the time that I spoke at uh, AAP. But otherwise, okay. no, I've been very fortunate. Awesome. Yeah, um, I'm from Tennessee, and we have a newer DO school. And I think we're finally kind of getting into our our shoes growing into it, I guess. But um, mm -hmm. I remember asking, you know, MDs when I was applying to medical school, I only applied to two MD schools, and I applied to mostly DO schools. And I would ask them, I was just curious, like, I mean, if you had the choice, obviously, they're going to say MD school, I was just curious what their opinion was on DOs. And most of them were kind of negative views. And that was, you know, about six mm -hmm. years ago. So I think it's definitely gotten better. But in certain states, especially where there's not as many practicing DOs or with the newer DO schools, it's still something we're having to kind of overcome. But I'm glad that you haven't really yeah. had to experience that. Um, so something that as students were kind of interested in learning about is billing and how to get paid for OMT. And I was just curious how you learned how to do that if it wasn't taught to you in medical school. Um, uh, my practice manager. She was great, right? Awesome. We can't know everything. Uh, so I relied on her to teach me how to do it. Um, and then when I made a mistake, she came and told me about it. And I, you know, learned from that. And then once I became a residency program director, I made sure that my residents all received practice management discussions. And part of that was on billing and coding for OMT. That's awesome. Um, and to this day, when I lecture for OMM, I include the part about billing and coding how you document and then how you bill and code great thank Cause, you because we get a little bit of time it. right right if you're going to take the time you should get paid for it no i agree it's a procedure i mean we forget it's a procedure yeah. you know so that it's definitely something worth learning so that you can eventually make it part of your practice and make it helpful mm -hmm. to your patients but also profitable right so for medical students, how do you recommend they continue their studies at OMM once they're out of medical school, especially if they don't go to a residency that is osteopathic focused or that's getting osteopathic recognition, as we've seen after the merger? Well, for one thing, I, it's hard to understand why you wouldn't go right. to a residency <laughs> program that didn't have it. You spent um, two years very intensely learning about osteopathic medicine, and then hopefully you were able to practice some in third and fourth year. So really the only way you're going to keep up your skills is to be able to practice it during your residency. Um, so that's what I recommend, either going to a program that has osteopathic recognition or at least has some DO residents where you can get a table, put it in the resident lounge, and at least treat each other. Because without doing OMM regularly, you're going to get rusty on your skills. Right. As with anything in medicine, if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. So Yes, you awesome. do. Um, so, with your experience as a program director, do you have any advice for students applying to residency this year? It's obviously a very interesting situation, especially since a lot of interviews will now be online, but do you just have any advice that could just give us, I guess, some, some support while moving forward in this kind of unprecedented situation? Yes. So, I think the first thing is not to listen to um, the recent graduates because your situation is not going to be like anything that they experienced. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. I think you need to rely on your uh, faculty and uh, school administration because we're on these webinars 
all the time, finding out what's happening nationally, right? So, like, I knew very early on that OB residencies were not going to have any audition rotations. Like, that's huge that there won't be auditions. And so I'm telling everyone that if you can get one or two audition rotations, feel happy that you were able to do that. Because normally I tell people to try to get five or seven. But you will probably be lucky if you get two. Right. And this, right. And I mean, there's, we're still waiting to see if um, family medicine releases a specially specific statement right now, but yeah. we have been looking, you know, on AMC just to see other specialties of what they're doing. So that's good. To know. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that OB-GYN wasn't doing auditions this year. So that's news to me. Nope. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I would say if you have a residency program that you're highly interested in, call them and see if there's a way to be able to get to know them better. As in, could you attend some of their didactics? If there's a resident or a faculty who are doing research, can you help them? There's lots of things you can do remotely by, you know, crunching numbers, helping to collect data. So get to know them in other ways. Gotcha. Since without be able to audition. Yeah, since not mm-hmm. you're not able to physically be there, try to do something that you can do online. I think that that would be very easy for us to do potentially, especially if they mm-hmm. have like uh, recorded or online didactics. So thank you so much for that advice. That's really helpful, especially as you know I'm applying this year too. So um, uh-huh. <laughs> so right. my last and, question. And research, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, the, go ahead. Well, go the ahead. research piece would be great because it just boosts your CV. Mm-hmm. For so sure. I, I do think, and, and every single resident has to do a scholarly activity. And they'd be very open to having help because life as a resident is really hard. For so sure. I think that's another way in. I'm just curious, have you done OMM specific research? Because it kind of sounded like you had. I just didn't know if um, mm-hmm. that's something. Okay, so yeah. how do you, do, yeah, our is program, that usually, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, our program did one on the use of OMM in RSD, and we made it a, a very easy, doable project. Um, we looked from January through April, because that's the height of RSD season. We looked at two variables, um, the use of uh, oxygen and the length of stay, and we looked at two procedures, rib raising and trigeminal stimulation. Awesome. Um, and, you know, obviously it was a pilot. I think we had 44. I think our M was 44. But we did statistically significantly change the um, uh, length of time on oxygen and the length of stay. So it's pretty cool. Awesome. So my last question is just what final tips do you have for students pursuing family medicine in general? Not just, you know, this crazy time for residency, but just overarching. Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing is to never feel like you are lesser than any other specialty. I have had students come crying to me that someone said, you're too smart to be a family doctor. Well, I think you have to be pretty darn smart to be able to do everything because we do the entire spectrum of medicine. So uh, I, I say don't get discouraged and if someone's saying something disparaging go find one of your family medicine mentors and just talk to them and they'll get you energized again 
Awesome. Yeah, that's something I love about ACFP is that, you know, we're all so invigorated, excited about family medicine. It feels like a family and everyone's so positive about it. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, so bye to the naysayers is kind of what I say. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Wilkins. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your advice for residency and then also how you kind of came to be in your career and sharing everything that you've learned about OMM. We've loved to hear you at the conference and hopefully we'll get to hear you again this year. I would like that very much, Katie. I, I love being able to talk to the students. Awesome. And thank you so much to our listeners for listening to our final OMM and Family Medicine podcast. Um, we hope you all have a great and safe summer. The ACUFP Student Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACUFP, please visit www.acufp.org. Looking for more resources on OMT? Visit ACUFP's OM Teaching at www.acufpomteaching.com and ask your institution if they subscribe so you can have access to over 150 OMT videos and support materials.